We are a wealthy nation, aren't we? We might look at ourselves and say, well, I'm not very rich, but in comparison to many people in this world, we are very wealthy. And there is the danger of trusting in that wealth, as Micah mentioned, being proud of our wealth, hoarding our wealth. And there's a warning given in James chapter 5, a very firm warning, words of warning to the wealthy. James 5, we read verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers owed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, and let a life of wanton pleasure you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness, your mercy to us. Thank you for the words that we have read this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would take them to heart that you would speak to us, O God, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would remind us that there is nothing in this world that is worth knowing Jesus and following him. So guide us into your truth, Lord. We believe that your word is everlasting truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I played basketball in high school, there were a few players that most people did not like to play against. They were the ones who took defense seriously. And they were like always in your face, right? And they had a few things to say to you as well while guarding you in your face. But I learned that if I was going to get better as a ball player, I needed to learn how to play against those kind of players that were always in your face. As you study the book of James, you see how James was kind of that writer. It seems like he's, he's kind of always in your face. It's a very practical book, a very challenging book. And there are probably times when we say, you know, I, I didn't really want to hear that today. <laughs> But I needed to. I needed to hear that. And maybe this message today is, is something that we need to hear as we think of the wealth that we have in our land. What are we doing with that? Is it being used to bring people to Jesus? To lay up treasures in, in heaven? Or are we just consuming it on our own fleshly desires? I found it interesting to notice how some of the commentators describe this text. (laughs) One author says it is a scathing message. Another one says it is a pounding of the rich. A third one says it is a blistering, scathing 
denunciation. James spares no punches here because he is speaking to those among the wealthy that do not know the Lord. That's that's who he is addressing here. People who have chosen riches instead of Jesus, and he, he is pounding them. He is warning them that there are consequences which are eternal. If that's how you're going to live your life, chasing after the things of the world, instead of Jesus, the results are pretty sad. So there's three things he shares with those who don't know the Lord and are living for the things of this world. The first thing he says, if you are hoarding wealth, misery is coming. Now the first thing to say is that God's word is clear that it is not a sin to be wealthy. Okay? Job was a wealthy man, right? Abraham was a wealthy man. There are many others in Scripture. God blessed them with great wealth, and they used it in a way that honored the Lord. So it is not a sin to be wealthy. But the wealthy ones to whom James is writing here were not at all like Job or David or Abraham. Instead, they were using their wealth not for the sake of others, but they store or storing it up for themselves. And so James has some pretty strong words for them. Verse 1, he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now those words that he uses are very strong words. The word weep carries the idea of wailing and lamenting. And one author says it can include every external expression of grief. It was used to describe wailing over someone who had died. And if you know anything about that culture, it was expressed in a very outward, visible way. We don't express our grief that way, but they did in in that culture. The word howl carries the idea of shrieking and screaming. It's one of those uh, Greek words that sounds like it's meaning. Um, Let's see if I could pronounce this word. We call it onomatopoeia. Is that right? Onomatopoeia. There we go. Thank you. I knew I'd screwed up. So the word sounds like what what is happening. Uh, if you don't know what that means, let me give you some examples. Norwegians say ufta. How do they say it? Ufta. So you don't even know, you need to know how it's defined. You know it's, it's not a good thing. Or Finlanders, they will say voikauhia. Kind of like Norwegian ufta. You can't really translate it, but it means it's not very good. And so that word howl is one of those kinds of words, when you say it in the Greek language, it sounds like the meaning of that word. And so the the warning that James is giving here is a serious one. And he is telling those who are hoarding their wealth to weep and howl in sorrow over their sin, otherwise miseries will come upon you. So he's confronting them with their need to repent, isn't he? If you do not, there will be misery that will come upon you. What are those miseries? 
Verse 2, he says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. In other words, the things that they treasured, James says they, they're going to be useless. The things that you have stored up will be of no value. They will be rotten. They will be moth-eaten, rusted, because there's nothing of this world that's going to last. And if you put your trust in those kinds of things, guess what? You're headed for misery. Because one day you're going to have to say goodbye to it all. It will not last. I remember when I was a child, there was, uh, I don't know if they still have these, but there was a punt, pass, and kick contest. that ring a bell to any of you old people? And then there was a pitch, hit, and throw contest in, in baseball. You had to pitch, had to try and hit it, get, get it in this round thing, and then hit the ball and throw. Well, I won those competitions, and I had to, ended up going down to um, Mets, Mets Stadium, you guys don't even know what that is, do you? That was before the metronome. <laughs> had a chance to compete there, and then uh, punt, pass, and kick at where the Vikings played. That was a Mets stadium too, wasn't it? Oh, man, that's pretty sad. But Anyhow, so I had gotten this gold trophy, and I, was, I have to confess, I was so proud. I stuck it in the window, and the sun faded the gold. It didn't even look like gold anymore. I got them out in the garage. I'm just thinking maybe one day one of my kids is going to want that, but it's... <laughs> you're laughing. It's starting to rust. And that was a picture to me of putting my, my joy in something that it's not going to last. That, that's what it's like with, with riches. They're going to be uh, rotten, moth-eaten, rusted of, of no value. He even goes further, James says, worse than your wealth being consumed. He says, rich people who don't know Jesus, you yourself will be consumed. Verse 3, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Notice the phrase, witness against you. That kind of gives us a courtroom scene, doesn't it? A courtroom scene. Evidence is presented against the accused. And it's a reminder that these men will one day face the day of judgment. They will stand before God's judgment throne, and God will present the evidence of his righteous judgment. One author says this, In the judgment their hoarded, rotted, moth-eaten, corroded treasures will give graphic testimony to the unregenerate state of their hearts. Their covetous, selfish, compassionless, earthbound approach to life will provoke their condemnation, and it will be perfectly just. This is a clear warning, isn't it? It couldn't be clear. And so he is saying to these men who are hoarding their wealth, whose hearts are not right with God, you need to deal with your sin. You need to repent, because if you don't, there will be misery that will come upon you. Now you'd think that with a warning like this, 
that people would examine their hearts. Ask the question, am I using what God has given to me in the way that honors Him? But, but chasing after the riches of this world is such a powerful temptation that many people choose riches instead of Jesus. Because what did Jesus say? You can't serve both. You can't. You can't serve both God and money. I read a story about a British ship that was wrecked off the coast of Brazil, and in its hold was all kinds of containers with with uh, gold uh, coins. And so the crew was trying to save some of those coins. They started carrying them on the deck, but the ship was breaking up so fast they had to abandon their efforts and bring out the lifeboats. And so just before the last one a lifeboat pushed off. There was a young midshipman that was sent back to see if there was anybody left on the ship. And there was this guy sitting there with a hatchet, breaking up these containers with gold coins, stuffing them in his pockets. And so the midshipman said to him, he said, what are you doing? Don't you know the ship is breaking to pieces? And here was his response. He says, I may go down. But I've lived in poverty all my life, and I am determined to die rich. Really? You are determined to die rich. Is there any value in dying rich? When you stand before God, will that matter how much money you had, how big your retirement fund was, how expensive your house and cars were? Are you going to say to God, well, Lord, Lord, Do you know who I am? God will say, no, I don't. Depart from me. Will many help in the day of judgment? It will not. Psalm 49, verse 7, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. And what did it cost? Peter says, we are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So when you stand before God, and you will stand before God, we will all stand before God one day, our only hope of salvation is in Jesus and Him alone. And so don't fall for the temptation of the world to to choose to, to follow after all these things. All these things. It won't matter. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. The second thing James says, if you are stealing wealth, the Lord is is watching. One of the reasons why James is so blunt with the wealthy in our text is because some of them were hoarding wealth that they had gained unjustly. They had hired people to work for them, but they didn't pay them. Look at verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of So you can see why many of these men were wealthy. They weren't paying the people who worked for them. And God's word is is very clear on that, especially the case with those who are poor. 
Deuteronomy 24.15 says, You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets. For he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry out against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. But the wealthy men to whom James is writing here, they disregarded that clear command of God, and that's why there was an outcry against them. And interesting how the word pay that was due to the workers is personified as if the pay can speak. Look at verse 4. James says, The pay of the laborers who mowed your field and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And that word is a very strong word. It, It means to shout for help in a tumultuous way. And it's used actually of Jesus' cry on the cross. Mark 15, verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Same word that James uses. Remember, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this cry is a desperate plea. These people are in great need, and those who hired them refused to listen. But guess who's listening? God is listening. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. God hears those cries. The wealthy may have thought they were getting away with their sin, but God knew all about it. He heard the cry of those who were being cheated And I find it interesting the way that that James describes the Lord here. He describes him as the Lord of Sabaoth. What does that mean? It's an untranslated Greek word that comes from the Hebrew word Saba, which means hosts or armies. So he's describing the Lord here as the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. So the Lord is the commander of the armies of heaven who comes to the aid of his people. So James is saying, you need to realize to whom these people are crying out. He is the Lord of the armies of heaven and he will deal with you. Yes, he will. If you jump down to verse 6, there's another way in which the wealthy were stealing from the poor. James says, you have condemned... And put to death the righteous man, he does not resist you. Some suggest that this verse speaks of the wealthy using the legal system to steal from the righteous. And because most of the righteous believers were poor, they had no money to defend themselves. The wealthy were the ones that controlled the courts. They often bribed the judges to get their way, even to the point of a death sentence. For those whose land they wanted. James says the righteous man does not resist this unjust treatment, probably because there wasn't anything they could do to resist. There seemed to be two standards of justice, one for the rich and one for the poor, and it always seemed to turn out better for the rich. That interesting how that works. Do you ever wonder if there are two standards of justice in our world today? 
Boy, I'll tell you, it sure seems like it. Two standards of justice. You ever wondered if equal treatment under the law is a thing of the past? Seems like there are people who seem to get away with everything. But guess who's watching? Guess who sees? Guess who knows? Guess who hears the cries of of those unjustly treated? The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath, and one day he will judge. God always has the final word. Always. Maybe not in this life, but God always has the final word. Because he is God. And one day everyone will stand before him and God will bring out his justice. The third thing James says, see why I said he's in your face? Very blunt here. He says, if you are wasting wealth, judgment is certain. Gives an interesting picture of those who are living self-indulgent lives, one that the farmers can understand. Verse 5, he says, You have lived luxuriously on the earth, and you have led a life of wanton pleasure. And then he says this, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. How many of you farmers have had animals that were brought to slaughter, huh? You fattened them up, right? And they were gorging themselves. Oh, this is wonderful. This is great. I could eat anything I want. And they were putting on all kinds of weight. They didn't know. They were being fattened for the day of slaughter. That was to come just right around the corner. Now, James says that this is what's in store for those who steal and hoard and waste their riches. But he wants these men to realize this. He wants them to know this, that the moment of pleasure will come to an end and there will be eternal consequences. So he's warning them to say, you know, these animals, they didn't know the day of slaughter was coming. But I want to tell you that, so you know this. Why? Maybe they'll repent. Maybe they'll turn to Jesus. And begin living in a way that, that honors him. Perhaps some of them will repent. The sad thing is that many do not repent. In spite of the warning, they still continue in their sin. They choose wealth instead of Jesus. The temporary in place of that which is eternal. I read about a tribe in Africa. They elect a king every seven years. And at the end of those seven years, the king that was the reigning for those seven years is killed. So for seven years, they enjoy basically anything they want, every possible luxury. During those years, their authority is absolute, even to the power of life and death. But at the end of seven years, they know they're going to die. And there's always Someone else who wants to be king next. That's something. It just seems like, whoa. Why would you say, I am going to live it up. I'm going to do whatever I want. 
I'm going to live luxuriously knowing that after seven years, I'm going to die. It's not that different, is it, for people today? It may not be seven years. It might be longer. It might be shorter. But they're living with that same idea that I am going to take the pleasures of sin for a moment regardless of the consequence. I would say, that's foolish, wouldn't you? Is this what you're doing today? Are you living for the temporary pleasures of the world, not thinking about the day when you stand before God? Give an account of your life. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 8. Two questions. In verse 36, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Second question, verse 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's no way that anyone could gain the whole world, right? But even if you could, even if you could own the entire wealth of the whole world, would it profit you in the day when you stand before God? It would profit you nothing. And yet many people make that foolish choice. How many times have you heard someone say, He who dies with the most toys wins? Is that true? How foolish thinking that having the most things when you die, you're the winner, you're a loser. You're a loser. I can't think of anything more foolish than to follow that philosophy. You're not going to take it with you. You're going to leave it behind. Someone else is going to get it, and you don't know what they're going to do with it, how they'll spend it. They might just waste it. The only thing that will matter on that day of judgment is if you know Jesus. That's the only thing that will matter. He is the only one that can save you from the judgment that James is describing in this text. Because he took the wrath that you and I deserve on the cross for our sins. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And then he says, all of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. That's the gospel, right? That's the good news. And that's what James wanted these men to experience. First of all, by reminding them and warning them that the pathway that they were headed on was, it was heading to destruction. They needed to turn. They needed to repent, put their trust in Jesus. And then you can face eternity with joy, right? Knowing that when that day comes to be ushered into the presence of Jesus and to hear, well done, you good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. That's 
where true joy is found. Even if you're the poorest person in the world, if you know Jesus, the best is yet to come, isn't it? The best is yet to come. When Jesus forgives you of your sins, your life changes. And one of the ways your life changes is your attitude toward wealth. You realize that all that you have is given to you as a gift from God, and it's to be used for His glory. That's what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. That's what it really means to live. Recognizing that all you have is a gift from God. And using that to to minister to others and, and to bring glory to God. That is truly life indeed. And may we experience that life today because we know Jesus. We've been forgiven and cleansed. We recognize that everything we have is from Him. That we use it to honor and glorify the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this very blunt, very clear warning to those who have chosen riches instead of Jesus. Oh, Lord, help us to recognize that the things of this world will never satisfy. There is nothing that we can ever take with us. The only thing that will matter when we stand before you, O God, is that we know Jesus as our Savior and Lord. So, Father, take these words, apply them to our lives today. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.